Monday I was talking with a Southern Baptist pastor friend of mine. And he told me an interesting statistic within Southern Baptist Convention that he had read this week. And that is that 50% of baptisms within the Southern Baptist Convention are re-baptisms. Now that's a, that's a startling statistic. Now it is likely that some of these folks that are being re-baptized are folks that came from non-immersion type churches. Right? So if they were, say, a Presbyterian and they came and joined a Southern Baptist church, then they would need to be baptized by immersion. If they were from a, a maybe a Roman Catholic background or from a Lutheran background, and they came to the church, then they would have to be baptized by immersion. So that would account for some of them. But it is highly unlikely that most of them came from that sort of a background, and that's the reason. Instead, most likely they are people who once made a profession of faith and was baptized, and again, most likely in the Southern Baptist Church, then at a later date realized they were not actually saved, made another profession of faith, and was baptized again. Now what this means is that the first time these people were baptized, they were not really saved. But they had had some sort of an experience where they were led to probably pray a prayer, possibly walk to an altar, uh, they had gotten involved in the church at least enough to say, I need to be baptized. But all in all, all that happened resulted in a false conversion. That's a scary thought. Now, a false conversion, it is what it sounds like. It is when a person goes through the motions of getting saved, but does not actually get saved. But I'm convinced that false conversions... Uh, really account for most of the problems within the church, and particularly in America, because I'm an American and I know what goes on in the church in America. And I think it accounts for the, the experience of thousands, if not millions of people around the world who have made a profession of faith, maybe have been baptized, but they don't live any differently than they did before that profession. Like people who, who they have, again, they've prayed a prayer, they've been baptized. But when you look at what the Bible says should be in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ, those things are not there. Like by and large, I would say most of those are false conversions. But listen to some statistics that, are, that should be disturbing to us. In 1990, now these are older, but I don't think they've gotten any better in the last 30 years. But in 1990, an American crusade secured some 600 decisions for Christ. This was in one area. Yet 90 days later, so only 90 days later, follow-up workers could not even find that one of the 600 was continuing in their faith and their devotion to Jesus. In 1985, a four-day crusade obtained 217 decisions for Christ. Yet according to a member of the organizing committee, around 92% of that fell away and did not continue in their faith and devotion to Jesus. In 1991, a team from Boulder, Colorado went to Russia for an evangelism campaign and they obtained 2,500 decisions for Christ. The next year when the team went back, they could only find 30 that were still continuing in their faith and their devotion to Jesus. 
That's a retention rate of 1.2%. The last one uh, is that in 1995, a U.S. Evangelistic, uh, evangelical denomination reported that in that year they had secured 384,057 decisions for Christ. However, only 22,983 uh, could be found in fellowship, actually in church, continuing. They could not account for 361,074 of them. That's a fallaway rate of about 94%. Now those are just a few statistics from the last 30 years. and These all came from one book, uh, and it had a lot more statistics that I didn't read. The, the chapter that this book came from was entitled Mangled Bodies. Right? And it describes what I feel is an accurate and terrible picture of what is going on in the church world today, again, particularly within the church in America. And again, I'm not down on America or the American church, but I'm an American Christian, so I'm far more familiar with what goes on here in the church than I am with what goes on in Canada, Spain, or China. I just know more about what goes on here. In reality, these statistics, all that they actually do is put on a really large scale things that we have all seen for ourselves. I mean, just think about in your personal experience, how many times in your experience have you seen someone pray a prayer and receive Christ? Maybe start coming to church for a period of time. Maybe even go so far as to get baptized. But within a period of time, maybe a few months, maybe a few years, they have fallen out of church. They are not active even remotely. And their devotion to Jesus. They, they really have no desire at all to live for Jesus. Now this isn't to say that, that they, they go, they've gone long and hard into deep and hard wickedness. It just means that they sort of gave up on, on living for Jesus. Now, now that, that, again, it doesn't mean they're not moral. But morals, that's not what being born again does for us. I mean... When we're born again, there's things that should happen like the fruit of the Spirit. Deny ourselves. Take up our cross. Turn the other cheek. Let be renewed in our minds and transformed in our lives. All of that should be happening in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. And for many of the, for what we see in these people is those things aren't happening. That's what I mean when they've fallen away from their service and their devotion to Jesus. I mean, I've been here 16 years at this church. And I bet I couldn't count on both hands and both feet how many people I've seen that very thing play out right here since I've been here. Right at the church at Fort Gibson, before we came out here, the number of those people that had done I mean, again, it was significant that it had happened. And I believe that all of these things, they point to the tragedy of a false conversion. So tonight what I want to do is, I want us to look at some characteristics of false conversions, to see some biblical examples of these, and then I want us to be moved to pray about it for our church. So we're going to start in the Gospel of Matthew. Open your Bible to Matthew 13. We'll start in verse 3. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. And we're going to look at a familiar story, the parable of the soils, but we're really only going to look at one particular soil tonight. Matthew 13 and 3, it says, 
Then Jesus spoke these things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on, pl- on the hard, stony places, and they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now look over at verse 18. Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. But he who receives seed on the stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulations or persecution arise because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received the seed among thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But he who received the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, and indeed bears fruit, uh, and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The title of the message tonight is The Tragedy, the Danger of False Conversions. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. As we gather to study on your word tonight, let our hearts be open to what you have for us. Uh, what we'll talk about tonight, God, is hard. It can be. It's difficult. But Lord, it is something I believe we must understand and so that we can pray against it so that we can, well, Lord, we can be sure that this is not us. Uh, God, guide us tonight that we would lay aside any preconceived notions that we may have, that we would not push this away because it's difficult or it makes us uncomfortable. But Lord, let us look at your word and let us rightly divide it tonight and let us see what you have for us. Let your spirit come and open our hearts and open our minds and take your word and and bring it deep into our hearts that we would bear fruit for your glory. And there would be evidence in our lives that we are believers in Jesus Christ, that we have been born again. And that Jesus is Lord over all that there is in our lives. Have your way tonight, Father. Let your spirit guide me that I would have clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and not be a hindrance in any way to what you want done. Be glorified, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, one of the main ideas of this parable is that there are different responses when the gospel is preached. Now, tonight we're only looking at one response or one soil that I think best demonstrates the false conversion and gives us some characteristics of a false conversion, right? We're looking at the stony ground, right? So again, look at verse 20. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now, I'm convinced that this, the stony ground, it shows us a false conversion. But I'm convinced that this points to someone who hears the gospel, who responds in what seems to be the right way, has an appearance of salvation, but does not actually get saved. Now, I want to say before we go, I don't believe that this is a false conversion because this makes me feel comfortable. 
Because the idea of a false conversion doesn't make me feel comfortable. But I'm not saying that this is a false conversion because I like the idea of false conversions. Because I don't. Right? The fact that, that people who have been in this church and heard me preach and have made decisions here at these altars or in my office and that I have baptized and yet they may not be saved, the thought of that keeps me up at night. Right? This is not something that I think is a good thing that I like, but it is something that I believe the Bible teaches that we must understand. And as we look at what Jesus says here, He gives us some characteristics of a false conversion. Now, before we get into it, and to really see it, we do need to see the other times Jesus taught this parable. Uh, to see, because we can harmonize the accounts and get a more full picture of what the stony ground hearer or the false conversion is. So that's the only one I'm going to, to use. Mark's account, it says, Likewise, the one sown on the stony ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, they have no root in themselves, so they endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arise for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Like in Luke, Jesus says, but the ones on the rock are those who when they hear receive the word with joy. These have no root who believe for a while and in a time of temptation fall away. So we combine those three accounts of what Jesus says. We see several characteristics of a false conversion. The first one is to me the most challenging. They receive the gospel with joy. All three accounts tell us in some way that they receive it with joy. Right? In, in Matthew, he says they immediately receive it with joy. In Mark, he says they receive it with gladness. And in Luke, he says they receive it with joy. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't know how to deal with that. Right? Because into my way of thinking, receive it with joy, that's the right response. I mean, to me, that's the response that, that would demonstrate... Salvation, that it was genuine, that they heard the gospel, believed the gospel, it sank deep into their hearts, and it immediately produced joy in their lives. And yet, the only soil that we're told that received it with joy is the stony ground of the false conversion. In verse 23, even the good soil isn't mentioned. That it received it with joy. And we know that's a genuine conversion. That that is someone who is definitely saved. So what is the lesson about that they received the gospel with joy? I think, I think what makes the most sense to me is that what Jesus is doing by using this is teaching us not to judge by outward appearance. About the outward expression of joy that came from receiving the gospel, it doesn't necessarily tell the entire story about what's going on in the heart of the hearer. But perhaps what Jesus wants us to understand is that just because a person responds in the moment in the way that we think they ought to, because again, this is the way I think people ought to respond when they receive the gospel. But the way they respond in the moment isn't necessarily the most telling thing about whether or not their conversion was genuine. He doesn't want us to judge in that moment for it. The second truth about the, the false convert 
false conversion is they have a shallow faith or a shallow understanding of the gospel. Again, all, all three accounts that say that they have no root in themselves in some way it tells us that. And what that does is it shows us a, a shallow faith or a shallow understanding of Scripture or a shallow understanding of, God, of the gospel. Right, they, they get just the bare basics, I guess, but they don't, it never sinks deep enough into their heart to bring a change, the real change into their lives. Now, I think there's a lot of different ways this might happen. I think it could be that perhaps they didn't count the cost of following Jesus like He said to do. They thought the talk of denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus, that it applied to others, but maybe not them. Perhaps they they wanted a Savior who would forgive their sins, but not a Lord who would make demands on their lives. Perhaps what they wanted was was to be saved from the, the threat of hell, but not really to live for Jesus in the way that Jesus expects and demands. All of those things would result in a shallow faith and a shallow understanding of the gospel. But it could be that they came to Jesus thinking He would fix all the problems in their lives. Right? They, they, they came to Jesus thinking that if they receive Jesus, they're baptized, that, that it's going to fix their marriage, that it's going to get them a job, that it's going to fix their financial problems, it's going to deliver them immediately from their addictions and their hang-ups and all of the issues they have in their life. And, and because they think Jesus is now going to immediately fix it, that's where the joy comes from. The reality is Jesus doesn't actually promise to do all of that stuff for us, particularly like that. So what happens when someone comes to Jesus and we say, come to Jesus and He'll fix your marriage. Come to Jesus and and it will fix your financial problems. Come to Jesus and He'll take away your depression and your discouragement. And then they come to Jesus and it doesn't take away their depression. It doesn't fix their marriage. Doesn't fix their finances. They don't immediately get a job. Well, that would be a problem. And coming to Jesus just thinking he's going to fix these outward things, well, that would result in a shallow faith. That would result in a shallow understanding of the gospel. Well, it could also be that they are what's often called a cultural Christian. Right? A cultural Christian, these are people that for one reason or another are expected to be. Christians, and so they fulfill that expectation. It may be that they were raised in a Christian home, and everyone just expects that they'll come to Jesus and be saved. Now, one thing with a cultural Christian that was particularly one that was raised in a Christian home is sometimes they are manipulated and pressured into that. I heard a story about a guy that was an atheist, and he he went to church with his granny and was at a revival and. They were calling for people to to come to Jesus and be saved. And he and the other kids that were, I think they were just 13, either preteen or just teenagers, were all sitting up front. Well, that's where they were supposed to sit. And and everybody was up here praying for all of the teens to get saved. And as they were praying for them to get saved, it was going on and on. and, And of course, if you were raised in a Baptist type church, you've been in the invitation that just was never ending and was going and one more verse of just as you are kind of thing. 
And he was sitting by, there were only two left. Him and a friend were the only two that hadn't gone forward. And as they were sitting there, his granny was sitting on one side, holding on to his leg, praying, and the preacher was on the other side saying, don't you want to come to Jesus and go to heaven with your parents when you die? And his friend looked at him and said, I'm ready for this to be over. I'm going to go to Jesus and be saved, so this will end. And he said, in that moment, in that moment, he determined, he he just could not believe in Jesus because of, of what happened to him there. That sort of thing could cause someone to be a a cultural Christian. They were expected to. They were supposed to. So they they prayed the prayer. They were baptized. They, They didn't have a choice but to go to church, so they went. But it wasn't really a genuine conversion. But it could be someone that that maybe marries into a Christian family. When I was a youth pastor, we had a girl in our youth group who was really pretty. And she had a boyfriend that was kind of wild. And she had been wild with him for a little while, but she had turned and repented and given her life to Christ and was trying to live for him, and it was causing a rift in their relationship. And he wouldn't stop, and she wouldn't go back to it, and so she broke up with him. Well, he came to church a couple of weeks in a row, and then one week he came forward and he gave his life to Christ, and they got back together. But it didn't last, either the the relationship or his commitment to Christ. Because after a while, he really only wanted to get back together with her. But he came forward, he prayed the right prayer, he said the right words, he, I think he was even baptized. But he was doing what was expected of him to keep the girl he was in love with his girlfriend. And that moment, for a period of time, he was a cultural Christian. But it, it could be people that for one reason or another, they, they just kind of know all the right words to say. And again, whether they were raised in church or they went to Sunday school, they've been taught and they know they know the lingo, right? They know what it means to say, I've received Jesus. They know how to what it means that you're supposed to pray and all of these things. But they really don't understand the gospel. They never fully grasp it. Uh, they don't understand the level of devotion that Jesus demands from those who follow Him. Right? And that sort of Cultural Christianity will result in a shallow faith and a shallow understanding of the gospel. But whatever the case, whatever the cause, their shallow faith and their shallow understanding of the gospel it leads to the next, the next characteristic of a false conversion. They only endure or believe temporarily. Now, this is important because this is the main reason I believe it points to a false conversion. But in all cases, it says they only either believe or endure for a while. Now, Matthew and Luke, or Matthew and Mark, both say they only endure. Luke says they only believe for a while, both of them. Now, to me, those are, I think the believe and endure are both significant, right? Because to me, endure is live the life. They live for Jesus. But they only live for Jesus for a while. But then there's belief, right? Because salvation is based on faith, isn't it? Didn't Jesus say that that those who, who believe are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Luke 
records, Jesus said they only believe for a while. Now, I suppose, I suppose that some could say that this would be a an, an, an example of apostasy, right? They they believe and then they become apostates. They forfeit their salvation. But I really don't believe this passage teaches conditional security. I believe in conditional security of the believer. I believe in the possibility of apostasy, but I do not believe this teaches it. I think, and what I believe this teaches is a false conversion. They only believe a little bit because they've got a shallow faith and they only believe a little while. They only endure for a little bit and they fall away. So what causes them? To fall away. And that leads to the last thing. They fall away because of temptation, tribulation, or persecution. Now, let's be honest. That covers a wide range of stuff that happens in the life of any believer in Jesus Christ. Temptation. Luke does not define the temptation. He doesn't say that it's a temptation to sexual sin. He doesn't say it's a temptation... To, to greed. He just says temptation. So all the temptations that we might face. It's part of the temptation that causes them to fall away. Tribulation. Now it says tribulation for the word's sake. But that doesn't necessarily mean persecution. Because persecution for the word's sake is also mentioned. What is something else that could be tribulation for the word's sake? How about the hardness of having to live some of this stuff out? How about the hardness of having to turn the other cheek? The hardness of having to be holy as He is holy. The hardness of having to deny yourself and take up your cross. Follow Him. That would be tribulation for the Word's sake because that's hard and difficult stuff to do. And then there is persecution for the Word's sake that... There is a time when there's hardship because of your faith in Jesus. Now, it could be, particularly in their day, literal what we would call persecution where you're beaten, tossed to the lines, fired from your job, all of that kind of stuff. All of that stuff happened eventually to everybody who followed Jesus in the Bible. But persecution, for the Word's sake, it wouldn't have to be that. I mean, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about People saying evil things against you falsely for my sake. And that's not the end all be all of persecution. That's certainly not being tossed to the line or having your head chopped off. But it's still a form of persecution. And how many of you know that if you begin to live for Jesus in our day, particularly if you didn't live for Jesus, weren't even remotely a Christian, then you determine you're going to live for Jesus, some people aren't going to like it. Some people are going to make fun of you. right? And for all kinds of reasons, they may give you a hard time for it. And what they tell, what the what Jesus says is that when this happens, they they stumble, or Luke says that they fall away. Now, stumble in Matthew and Mark really isn't a strong enough translation of the word used, because to me, stumble sounds like they trip and maybe catch themselves and keep on going. I stumble all the time, but I don't fall that much. But stumble. As in you kind of catch yourself and go on. Isn't what's meant here. 
Luke's account gives us the best translation of the word. That is to fall away. But none of these accounts refer to someone who, who slips up in the faith. Right? Not, a, not a believer who, who sins and then gets back up again and takes off following Jesus. But instead the picture is a complete and total falling away from Christ. And what happens is in this time of temptation or tribulation or persecution, it reveals their shallow faith. It reveals their shallow understanding of the gospel. In fact, I believe what it does, I don't believe, I've heard say it destroys their faith, but I don't think that's an accurate way to say it. Because the reality is they didn't have a genuine faith to begin with. What happens is, the temptation, tribulation, and persecution reveals the truth. They didn't have a genuine faith. It reveals what was right, that they weren't genuinely saved. Now, this doesn't mean that they'll become rabid atheists, although some do. I could, I know some that were raised in church and kind of had this sort of an experience, and now they are very anti-Jesus and Christian. But that doesn't mean that that's all of them. Right? For many, they may even continue to profess faith in Jesus. Oh, yeah, I mean, I guess I believe in Jesus. I mean, I believe in God, sure. I mean, everything had to come from somewhere, right? And, and I guess I believe in Jesus. But what you'll see is a, a difference in the way that they live. Right, so the picture that Jesus paints is they immediately receive it with joy. And there is a little while in which they're doing it. So they receive the gospel. They have the response that we would all think would be the right response. And there is a period where they live for Jesus. But then the hardships come. The temptation, tribulation, or persecution. And in that time, they probably become disillusioned or, or disappointed with God. Probably they become disappointed first. I mean, why am I facing this temptation? I, I'm supposed to be saved, so I shouldn't face a temptation. I mean, if God was really loving and kind and powerful like they're saying, why are these hardships happening in my life? Why are people being mean to me for the sake of my devotion to Jesus? And the longer the suffering goes on, the, the greater the disappointment with God grows until there comes a time when disappointment does become disillusionment. And it's probably at this point that their lack of devotion to Jesus becomes visible. Because up to this point, they've likely maintained an outward appearance of devotion. Right? So if they were active in coming to church regularly, during this time of disappointment, before it got to disillusionment, they stayed in church. They continued to come. But then there grew a point where they were disillusioned and it was too much. And so, their faithfulness to church begins to wane. They begin to fall back and to fall out of church. A little here, a little there. Now, if you knew them really well, you could probably have seen that over time they, they had quit reading their Bible. They weren't praying as much. Right, things that, that at the time probably didn't seem like to be big deals, but looking back you can say, man, this was just a steady progression of what was going on. But what happens is, as they're disappointed, they, they can maintain the outward, but the inward is just in, in constant turmoil. 
But once it hits disillusionment, what's on the inside comes out on the outside. So they don't see the purpose and the point of reading your Bible and praying. They, they don't see the point coming to church and, and doing all of these things that, that they had done because they understood that's what helped them have a relationship with God. And so they, they give up. Now they may continue to forever affirm a faith in Jesus. Oh, I believe. Sure, I, I believe. I mean, why? I guess, right? But... They're never really going to live out devotion, service, a life for Christ again unless they are genuinely converted, which will be difficult because they've been told they were saved. They have believed a lie. And that's problematic. As a hospice chaplain, I... I talk to people that are dying nearly every week. Thus far, I have not met a single person in the panhandle of Oklahoma or northwest Kansas. Wasn't a Christian. Every one of them. Now, they would tell you, I haven't lived for Jesus. Not really. But I, me and the big man upstairs, we're good. Now, of course, I can't judge any of their hearts, but I'm going to tell you, for many of them, this is their experience right here. Now, chances are our first response is to say, man, that, that sounds harsh and judgmental. I mean, after all, who are we to say? Whether someone's faith is genuine and their conversion was legitimate and not false. And I agree. I don't think we should go to people and tell them, I think you have a false conversion. You don't have a genuine faith in Jesus. But at the same time, we do have to recognize that is the picture Jesus is painting in this passage. And it's not just this passage. If it was only here, we might could say that's probably not what it meant. But, but Jesus paints this picture in more than one case. Right? There's others besides this one, but this is the most famous one from the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, notice, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. But these are people who thought they were saved. But they weren't. Again, this isn't a forfeiture of salvation because Jesus never knew them. They were never saved to begin with. To put it in our context, you could probably say they had made a profession of faith. They probably had joined the church. They had probably been baptized. The fact that they had prophesied and cast out demons and done many wonderful works shows that they had in some ways even served Jesus. But on judgment day, when they stood before Jesus expecting to get into heaven, they are told, you don't get to come because they never knew you. That is a, a good a picture as there is of a false conversion experience. And it's a terribly, it's a terribly disturbing thought, I think. But I think we find examples of this in Scripture. 
So I want us to look at some specific examples. I'm going to have to do it quickly because time's running out. First, turn to Acts chapter 8, verse 9. Page 837, it should be. And it's Acts 8, verses 9 through 23. And because of time, I won't read the whole story. I'll just kind of summarize it for you. You can read it for yourself later. It's the story of a man who was Simon the Magician. Right? He was, before his conversion, important. He was significant in the city. He astonished the people in verse 9. And he claimed he was someone great. And it seemed that the people claimed he was someone great. And they even gave heed to him. Right from the least to the greatest. Saying this man is the great power of God. So there he was a pagan practicing witchcraft. They were like man that's got to be a God thing. That guy's awesome. Everyone knew him. He was a superstar. Then people came and began to preach the gospel. And he saw people turning to Jesus. And and in fact, he liked the message it seemed. And it says in verse 12, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. Now, all of that, again, this is kind of like what Jesus, this sounds exactly the right answer. Everything's going exactly the way that it should. But the apostles come. And they hear that people of Samaria had received the word. They sent after Peter and John and sent them to them. When they came down, it says in verse 15, that the apostles prayed for the people that had been saved that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit had yet to fall on them. They'd only been baptized in the name of the Jesus. When they laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, that was a big thing, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit comes in this in these early stages. It was big and significant and, and noisy in a lot of ways. People could see something that happened. And Simon, in that moment, he faces a temptation. Because can you imagine what people are doing when the apostles are in town now? You have Philip preaching the gospel and Droves of people turning. Philip is doing signs and wonders and miracles in the name of Jesus. The apostles come, who are also likely doing signs and wonders and miracles in the name of Jesus. And they're praying for people, laying hands on them so the Holy Spirit can come upon them. Now Simon, at this point, he's just one of the crowd. Now as a believer, he's not the guy up front anymore. He's not... Someone everybody's paying heed to from the least to the greatest. He's not the great power of God. But he kind of sees a way he could be again. And so he says in verse 18 that when he saw the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me the power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, there's a temptation for him right there. A way to... To be famous again, right? Because if you can lay hands on people and they receive the Holy Spirit, you're once again going to be the guy up front. You're going to be knowledged and acknowledged and noticed. And notice what Peter says to him. Now Peter paid close attention because 
Peter doesn't just say, oh, that's the wrong attitude, brother. Come here, let me kind of instruct you more fully in the way of Jesus. Peter said to him, your money perished with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God. could be purchased with money. Now, you have neither part nor portion in this matter. What is this matter? Salvation. The kingdom of God. The spirit of God. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of your, this wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thoughts of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Those are strong words. And every commentary I checked said that what Peter is saying in the strongest possible way is that Simon is not saved. He is not correcting a brother in the faith. He is not saying you need to mature a little bit. He's saying, man, you must repent and believe and be saved. And I think you even get further experience of Simon or proof of Simon not being genuinely converted by his response. Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me. And all these things which you have spoken may come upon me. Now, what did Peter tell him to do? Repent, pray to God, and God will forgive you. What was Simon's response? You pray to God for me so that none of those bad things happen to you. He wasn't seeking to be restored to fellowship with God. I don't want to be judged like what you're talking about. I don't want to go to hell. You pray, and maybe God won't send me to hell. And I think there is a clear picture that, that Simon was never genuinely converted. They were bringing the next new thing, taking away his audience, and he just got caught up in the cool factor of it. Another example of a false conversion. Turn to John chapter 6. We'll start in verse 48. Again, we're not going to have time to read the whole thing. But in John 6, verse 48 through about 58, Jesus gives what is the probably the strangest sounding teaching He gives. And that's where He says, He is the bread from heaven. And if anyone wants to have life, eternal life, they must what? Eat His flesh and drink His blood. Now that's a strange... It's strange in our day. And we have a probably a better understanding through commentaries and study Bibles than they had then. This was the first time they'd ever heard anyone saying, if you want to have eternal life, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So how do people respond? We'll look at verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now, what they're saying is, this is difficult to understand. How are we supposed to accept it? That we're supposed to eat your body and drink your blood? But notice who's asking this question. Many disciples. Now, this isn't the twelve. Jesus had more than 12 disciples. Now, only 12 of those were apostles, but he had more than 12 disciples. So many of the disciples said to him, what are you talking about? How on earth are we supposed to accept that? So look at what Jesus says. When he knew in himself, the disciples complained or grumbled or griped about it. He said to them, does this offend you? Are you going to leave? Are you so offended by what I've said that you're going to turn and walk away from me? 
Now, in the next few verses, Jesus goes on and kind of talks to him some more, but, but he doesn't really ease the tension. He doesn't say, well, this is symbolic of this or that. He never resolves that tension that they feel. And so they respond in verse 66. And from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Jesus asked, are you going to fall away over this? And the answer is, yes. Now, again, these aren't the crowd. This isn't just the crowd. These are his disciples. These are people that have pledged to follow him, to learn from him, so they can spread the message when he's gone. Chances are, like if you go to Luke 9 and 10, Jesus sends out not only the 12 on a mission, but then he sends out 70 disciples Two by two on a mission. Chances are, these are some of those people that had gone out for Jesus preaching the kingdom. And yet they turned and they walked with Him. And John specifically says, no more. They fell away. The teaching was too hard and they were done. But notice in verse 67, Jesus says to the twelve, are are you going to go away too? Simon Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son, the living God. So the twelve don't, none of them fall away at this point. Now do the twelve understand all that Jesus meant by, I'm the bread of heaven, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Unlikely. This is really early in their ministry. They weren't the sharpest knives in the cupboard at this point. So why didn't they walk away when the others did? It was their faith. that They didn't have a shallow understanding of, of Jesus. And they may not have understood what Jesus said, but they did understand who Jesus was. And that kept them from falling away. So you have in the picture of a false conversion contrasted with a genuine conversion. And then one last example, quick. The Apostle John says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But these are people that had left the church. Why had they left the church? John says because they were never really of us. They were never really saved. That's the point he's making. Their leaving was a, a manifestation, a revelation of the fact they were never really one of them. Now this isn't they... They left the first church and went to went the Free Will Baptist Church and went to the Southern Baptist Church. They left completely. But this isn't they they split the first church and started Harmony and Unity Church. Right? This is just they'd had enough and they walked away from the church and they didn't come back. And that abandoning of the church was a revelation, according to John. They were never really saved to begin with. Because if they'd been saved. It would have stayed. It was false conversions. Now there are two primary reasons I wanted to talk about this tonight. First is so that we would know the reality and the dangers of false conversions. We kind of have to be aware of the danger someone is in. If their entire spiritual life, their entire relationship with Jesus is based upon something that happened years and years ago in the past. 
If their relationship and their salvation is based upon the fact that 20 years ago they, they walked an aisle, they knelt at an altar, they prayed a prayer, then they were baptized. But in their life, in the moment, in the present, there is nothing that testifies of being born again of the Spirit-filled life. That person is in danger. They are in danger of the fact that it was really just a false conversion. And that's true whether the person is us, whether the person is a loved one, or just some random person on the street that we encounter and begin to talk to. Secondly, we are in a series called Salvation through the month, and it's going to go on all the way through the month of August. In September, we'll start a new series. And every message is going to be evangelistic. And my hope is that they challenge people about their salvation, about it being genuine. Because I think that's a good thing. I think it is far better for someone to spend a period of time uncomfortable, questioning, wondering, uncomfortable, whether that would be for the time they were in church or for a few hours after, even a few days, to go through an uncomfortable period of time and then come to the place where they either say, yes, I know I'm saved, or I'm not, but I'm going to get that way right now. Far better for that than for them to enter into eternity and have Jesus say, Depart from me. I never knew you. It is good for people to be challenged about the genuineness of their salvation. So what we can do, what I want us to do is, is pray. And, and I know we, those that come out on a Wednesday night when it's 112 degrees outside, pray, I'm sure. But I want to give you some specific things to pray about. Pray that people would come. And our, our community is filled with people who show little concern to live for Jesus outside of occasional church attendance. Some of those would call our church their home. And I don't mean that to sound judgmental. I hope it doesn't. But in reality, it is something that worries me and it should worry all of us. In light of what we've talked about tonight, it is possible, it is likely, they have a false conversion experience. Worried about their salvation. Right? Pray that people would allow Scripture to examine their lives. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. And if you want to write this verse down, it's 2 Corinthians 13 and 5. In 2 Corinthians 13 and 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves. So there's a command. As to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. So they're to examine themselves to see if Jesus is among them. But notice, to me it's important to notice what Paul didn't say. Examine yourself to see if you prayed a prayer sometime in the past. Examine yourselves. Were you baptized at some point in the past? Instead, he says, examine yourself. Does your life demonstrate that Jesus is in your life? Does your life demonstrate you are in the faith? And if your life, I mean, he doesn't even talk about what you did two months ago, what right now. If your life doesn't demonstrate it, he says it is because you are disqualified. Meaning they weren't saved. Far too many people rely on a prayer that was prayed 20 years ago that has no impact on their lives today. They prayed a prayer as children or as young adults. 
And they were baptized, so they're good, regardless of the life they live. Maybe they do live in deep and abiding sin, but they, they prayed a prayer and they were baptized, so they're okay. Or, or they don't live in abiding sin, but there's no biblical evidence of salvation or spirit or, or work of Jesus in their life, but they prayed a prayer all those years ago, so they're okay. That is a very concerning place for anyone to be. So pray that everyone who comes would allow the Word of God to examine their lives and be the authority over their lives. Pray the Holy Spirit would bring conviction. But we know Jesus said that when the Spirit came, He would convict of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. Pray that the Holy Spirit would do that. He would convince them through the preaching and through the word of their true spiritual condition. One of the problems with those who have had a false conversion experience is in some ways they are inoculated against the gospel. They, it just doesn't bother them that their life isn't conforming to scripture or to Jesus. And it takes the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. We have literally had people in this church who were living in adulterous relationships. On Sundays, when I preached, thou shalt not commit adultery. And not only were they not bothered, they shook my hand on the way out and said that was a good message, and then they immediately went to their adulterous relationship's house. How hard. Our hearts. People like that. We desperately need the Holy Spirit to bring the kind of conviction that we saw on the day of Pentecost where they cried out, what must we do to be saved? People that would tremble under the weight of the Word of God. So pray for that. And then pray that people would obey the Gospel. The Gospel always pushes people to repent of their sins and believe On Jesus Christ. So pray that people would do that. We want them to be convicted. But convicted and converted are not the same thing. Pray that people would obey the gospel. And the call of Jesus. For their salvation. Pray they would repent. They would believe. And they would be saved. The church in America is in a bad place. Free Will Baptists had their national convention this week. Today there was a a report given and our denomination has declined 15% in a period of time. And we're not talking the last 50 years, but maybe two, three, four years maybe. That's a significant decline for a small denomination to begin with. There are loads of churches without pastors because older pastors are going off the scene and there aren't enough younger pastors to fill the pulpits. But it's not just free will Baptist. Southern Baptists have the same problem. Nazarene have a similar problem. Pentecostals have a similar problem. Even liberal denominations. It's not even, it's not even just because the world is so liberal. Liberal denominations have the similar problems. Just the the world at large is unconcerned with Jesus and eternity. If God does not work powerfully, 
I do not believe we are far from the church of Jesus Christ being largely unknown and unseen in American culture. We would say that that surely couldn't happen in America. But Europe was once the, the hub of Christianity. By and large, it is a post-Christian culture. Churches there are bars or museums or houses. Very, very few are actually houses of worship proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ anymore. A hundred years ago, people would have said that would never happen in the land of Wesley. It just would not happen here. And it did. We, we have to take it serious. We have to believe these things. We have to do what we can to pray against them, lead against them, fight against them spiritually.